Welcome to the Segment Data Council podcast, co-hosted by Segment, the leading customer data platform helping you manage your customer data, no matter the size of your business. Tune in to hear the latest community stories on how companies everywhere are using good data to drive customer growth. I'm Madeline Mullen, part of the Segment product marketing team. I'm joined by Arjun Grama, data instrumentation and architecture specialist at Anheuser-Busch InBev. Prior to AB Bev, Arjun was a growth product manager at IBM. Welcome, Arjun. Thank you. Great to be here. Arjun, to kick us off, would you share a little bit about the business challenges you've worked on at IBM? Absolutely. The challenges, I think, are not foreign to anybody in this space. The biggest one being a bunch of very separated systems that uh, weren't speaking to each other. Uh, with the additional issue of data not really being seen as something to focus on, but mostly a byproduct or something that you might be able to get if all the cards uh, land in your favor. So the biggest challenge that we had was one, just figuring out what systems were out there and then calling that list down to what systems mattered because there are plenty of things that have duplication. Uh, they have old legacy information that's great for you know, diving into bookkeeping, but really isn't relevant to business today, or they just have bad data. So figuring out uh, what was safe to even be paying attention to was one of the first things we worked on. And then uh, looking at how to tie it all together. Uh, IBM had so many acquisitions and uh, so many companies spring up within it that it really wasn't like dealing with one company. It was like dealing with 50 or 100 different small companies. So that was definitely an interesting uh, challenge to tackle. And then the other half of that being data literacy. A large part of the reason that we have so many or had so many different systems was because as a need came up, uh, they would build something to address it. And there wasn't necessarily a focus on the larger picture of how this fits into the IBM ecosystem, or more importantly, how this fits into the customer's journey. So the other piece of that in terms of data literacy was also positioning it in, in a way that allowed folks within IBM to see it, not just as you know data or something that's just conceptual, but a, a tangible piece of the customer journey that they could actually look at and understand. Those are a lot of different actions you were responsible for with the data. <laughs> uh, we had a great team. I absolutely did not do any of it single-handedly. And it was a journey, a journey they're still on, but one that uh, I think in the, in the last two years, they made significant progress with, and uh, there's good momentum to carry them forward. What would make data good or bad as you're trying to raise data literacy across the organization? That's a great question. I think it depends on who your audience is. I think good data for a product manager who's trying to understand some basic KPIs around the product and uh, you know maybe track the user journey is going to be different than good data for a product analyst who's really getting into the weeds and dealing with the nitty gritty. That said, I have some basic data principles that I like to adhere to. Less is more. I mean, if you have to figure out what data to go look at and then figure out how to understand it just to answer a single question, that's going to be a huge problem. And if you have to do that, chances are so does everybody else. So making it as upfront or as clear as possible from the get-go what uh, a data point represents. So that means consistent terminology and taxonomy, uh, trying to be specific as opposed to generic when we name our events and our properties, and then tracking all of it. Um, you could have the greatest data in the world, 
and it could follow a very clean and specific taxonomy. But if nobody understands it and there's no record of it anywhere, it's meaningless and worthless. And then I think for bad data, uh, it comes down to not having clear use. So when data is being collected, uh, there should be a specific use case or a specific uh, context in mind. Tracking for the sake of tracking just leads to more headache than it's worth. When you have these principles to help you identify good and bad data, how does this lead you and shape your automation journey? Oh, that's uh, another great question. So it really helps with automation if you have clean data and actually vice versa. So starting off, you know, it's a very manual process. You're uh, ducking, dodging, weaving to figure out where a certain data point is coming from, what it's supposed to mean, uh, who's sending it, why are they sending it? Once we get to a certain stasis or level setting and we're comfortable, maybe not with the state of the uh, the architecture, but we at least know where it is and what's happening with it, it becomes easier to automate. And automation helps with standards. Just uh, when things are automated, if they break, you know it's because you got something that was unexpected. So it helps you kind of manage expectations. And of course, it takes a very manual process and streamlines it. So it, it can help twofold really one for the team that's working on implementation because all of a sudden they're hearing less noise and they're not just you know throwing events out into the ether they have a very clear track of what to do and then on the flip side as a data consumer you know exactly what to expect and you know exactly what you're looking for so automation can be great once you have a more mature process and you have a better idea of what it is you're trying to achieve but automating for the sake of automating can also be again more trouble than it's worth because Writing something into stone when it's a first draft is just a bad idea. Now, what happens when segment becomes part of your automation tool set? Automation gets easier and all of a sudden you're not writing your first draft in stone, you're writing it in clay. So there's a little bit of flexibility. In general, because of the flexibility of segment with, you know, track once, leverage however many times you want, it becomes a little bit easier to try out different processes because you can pivot them really quickly. And when you find out that you know automation does or doesn't work, you can adjust accordingly. With protocols, it's great. You can put forward tracking plans for each team. You can slice them down as small as you need to or as big as you need to, which again, just makes it easier so that everybody knows exactly which sandbox they're playing in. The other piece of that is also, again, you track once and then you can send it wherever you want. How would you explain protocols? Protocols, oh, so... If segment is a highway, that's great because you can get to where you need to go. But in a lot of cases, you still need to have rules, you need to have maps, you need to have stoplights, and that's what protocols is. So if you've, if you've got a highway system with segment, then protocols is the infrastructure that actually allows you to govern it. So stoplights, speed limits, you know, HOV lane, you can really distinguish down to, you know, if a car is an event, you can say red cars go here, blue cars go here. If you're a red car, but today is a Tuesday, go here. Like you get really good granularity and control over your data. So it goes back to the automation where you can deal with the expected and you can also get immediately notified about anything unexpected. Because unexpected isn't necessarily bad, but it can be. So it's good to know about it the minute it happens. How do you see Segment informing your work for this coming year? I mean, Segment is my work for the next coming year. Um, we're rolling out to uh, several countries within the next year. And that means that that is several new instances of uh, segment and architecture that needs to be set up. So 
segment is my day to day, but it's kind of my foot in the door to learn about anything I want within the organization. So, uh, how does it inform my next year? Uh, I think it lets me pick what I want to learn about. Arjun, how does your team within AB and Bev operate and how big is it? So the data team is a whopping four people right now, uh, but Bees, which is the larger organization within ABI that we are in, and uh, Bees is the new digital pillar for ABI. So taking a lot of those analog or manual efforts and uh, bringing them into the 21st century uh, for both the convenience of suppliers and for customers. Uh, we support the entirety of the bees organization. So that's those 200 folks, but we work most closely with the product team uh, and then in turn with the engineering team whenever they have questions. When you're thinking about your journey with automation and segment, how have things been the same when you've moved over to AB and Bev? Uh, so AB and Bev had has folks that have worked with segment in previous roles. I'm not the only one. So there was already a higher level of data maturity within the org, but some things don't change. Like having to go into your product, click a bunch of things and see what fires in segment. That's just something that you always have to do. You have to level set and understand how are things being tracked. There's always the potential trap you fall into where you have a very specific solution that works really well for you, but it might not necessarily scale up or fit into the larger picture. And that was uh, less of an issue here since it is a single product as opposed to the numerous products we were working on at IBM. But uh, there's still some element of that, you know, same actions being tracked in a different way because they're happening in a different part of the application or something like that. So I think the biggest thing was just even when you know data, you're paying attention to it and you're focused on it. It's not necessarily easy and it's still going to be a little bit messy. So expecting that will make will reduce the headache that you can expect. When you say data maturity was higher within your new role, what makes up data maturity? I think, first of all, just the prioritization of collecting and acting on data. In a lot of cases, I think that data is looked at as this magic black box where it's like, oh, we'll get data and then we'll have an answer and we'll make a billion dollars. And after you know a month of tracking things, it's like, okay, where's my billion dollars? Um, no, it's not just you know track data, get money. Uh, that'd be great if it was. But the bigger thing is understanding why you're tracking and how you're planning to leverage it. So anytime that you go to a developer and you say, hey, implement segment for this feature, there should be a very specific performance question that you're trying to answer or a messaging component that you need to fulfill with this trigger. Uh, so I think the big thing here was that all the data being collected, while I may not have understood it right off the bat, its use was pretty clear. Like I could look at anything and even if I didn't clearly understand the definition, Based on the context, I could see why that would be something we would want to track. Uh, I think the other piece of it also is it's not data as an afterthought. Data is synced with product and each drives the other. When product releases something, they're going to have tracking for it so they can see how it performs. And when they want to have, when they want to do an upgrade or they want to roll something new out, they're generally going to have data to back it. Uh, so I think that was that was a really nice shift to kind of see. Uh, data at the forefront with the rest of, you know, product and engineering. Switching back to IBM, when you first arrived, what was that data stack like and how did it change? So when I first got to IBM, Segment obviously was at the core of the data stack. I think that was the first thing they had put in. And then shortly thereafter, they had implemented 
Amplitude for visualization and intercom for uh, customer engagement. It was a good stack, you know, functioned pretty well. There were only, I want to say maybe 15, if that IBM products on there. So it wasn't at the hundreds that it was by the time I left. So it was a little bit easier to manage. It was, it was good. I mean, there was a lot of learning that we didn't have tracking plans. We didn't really have anything that mandated or could help us govern the data that was being sent. So there was a lot of, a lot of just checking in on amplitude, looking at schema tabs, just to be like, Hey, you see anything funky. Um, and if you didn't see anything funky, you didn't hear anything from somebody downstream, you're like, I guess we're doing okay. Data was a means to an end there. It was more like these products need to be able to say, Hey, I have data, but really what they were saying is I can now message my uh, users through intercom, which is great. But the, I don't think there was a lot of, analytics done around the data that was being collected or even around the messaging that was going out. That being said, as we saw more folks start to see the uh, value of the stack, we were able to say, okay, rather than just giving you carte blanche to do whatever you want, we're now going to have some standards and some things that you have to do because we have needs on the data side and you're going to get you know all these great benefits, but only if you meet some of these criteria. So we started to go from having to chase teams down to having some teams come to us because they saw the value of the stack and that was nice. So uh, yeah, the team's doing really well there. They've continued to add to the stack. I know they just brought on Walk Me and won uh, an award there. So the IBM growth team is thriving. Why should companies act now on data maturity versus waiting till later? Well, I guess the argument is we got here, we got this far without it. Why do we need it now? Um, to that, all I can say is if you're okay with getting a B when you could be getting an A, power to you. But for those that are, you know, that are looking into data and do want to have a more mature data model, but aren't sure about timing, the longer you wait, the harder it gets. Um, you might not, not realize it, but you're continuing to churn out data, whether or not you're uh, governing it or structuring it in a specific way. So if you wait six months, that's six months of systems that you might have built integrated change that you're now going to have to deal with. So the quicker that you start getting a handle on your your data and actually just what's flowing in your systems and at least understanding it, the quicker you can start to clean it up or alternatively say, not worth cleaning up, let's start from scratch. Um, because whether or not you're cleaning up or just diving in to figure out whether you're going to do the cleanup, the longer you wait, the more there is to work through. So it just piles up. It's like procrastination, procrastinating anything else. The longer you wait, the worse it's going to be. Arjun, you've referred to yourself as a data wrangler. <laughs> How did you become a data wrangler? The first thing is that I like asking questions. We're still in the early days of data. I know clearly, you know, it's been around for decades, aeons. Data as we know it is relatively new. So while there are SMEs and there are geniuses and folks that really know their stuff in and out, nobody knows everything because everything is continuing to grow. The way that we employ it, uh, the way that it impacts our day-to-day -day lives is just continuing to evolve. So Data Wrangler was, if this is the wild, wild west, Data Wrangler is the guy going out there and getting a few of those horses. Like you're not going to, you know, tame the entire wild west, but you can go break a few stallions and have a good stable. So what we're, what I do is I try to figure out what are those things to go and try and wrangle. If there are a hundred horses thundering down the plains, what are those 10 horses that we really want to pay attention to? And that goes back to understanding the systems, uh, what information they have, what's valid uh, versus not, and then what also is actually realistic to try to get. So 
data wrangling is as much about understanding systems and understanding the data points as it is understanding people and the relationships that they have with each of these tools because you're not going to just go to a system and ask it for something. You're going to go to the person that works with the system and ask them. As a cowboy out on the range, do you have any other cowgirls or cowboys with you? Oh, heck yeah. I'm the only cowboy on the team. The cowgirls are Crystal. She's our head of uh, data and global insights. Uh, She's phenomenal. Works really heavily with reporting, but also helps direct the product teams and is kind of like the go-to person for data questions. Uh, You have Christine, who's a product analyst, and she knows the product in and out. Uh, Anytime I have questions around a piece of metadata or historical knowledge, she's my go-to. And then you have Carrie, who's heading up data globally. And that means customer engagement, messaging, collection, data reporting, all that good stuff. So yeah, I, I have an awesome team. And I'm realizing that uh, even at IBM, I was one of the few guys on my team. So I've been pretty lucky to work in an industry that even though it's very, very male skewed, in my slice or my experience of that industry, I've had a good amount of diversity. And then how do you ask for help? If you need help or the broader team needs help, who supports all of you? Definitely, if one of us needs help, the first instinct is to go to one of the others because they're most closely tied to the work you're doing, have the most context, and are you know obviously just the most willing to help you. But outside of that, bees as a whole is just very accessible. I'm able to you know slack somebody I've never met before, never been on an email thread before, send them two sentences, a little bit of context, and they're like, yeah, throw something on my calendar, happy to help. Um, let me know whenever you're free. So. Honestly, there's not really a set person that we go to because everybody's so focused on the same mission that it's really just, if you find a blocker, identify who can help you with that blocker and go to them. If you can't figure out who can help you, then you know go to your manager because they might have an idea of who to go to. But it's not so much uh, escalating or you know having to get help from above. It's just go find the person that knows it and they'll help. As your immediate team grows or the B's overall digital team grows, What do you look for when hiring? So from a technical standpoint, uh, you know, we're looking for folks that have some level of familiarity with data and uh, data architecture. Um, That is, if they're looking for an analyst role, if they're in development, we're looking for folks that have experience with mobile development for both iOS and Android. Um, But then I think the other really big piece, and this is not B specific, this is just ABI, is the focus on people. So just making sure that they are, uh, genuinely just a correct fit because from my experience here, I think the focus is more on finding the right person and then knowing that the role will come than, rather than vice versa. Thinking about what you're doing right now at ABM Bev, how does one get started building out a tracking plan? Usually I will have them, I'll have the product owner walk through the feature like a user would. So what are they clicking on? What are they typing in? What are they selecting? And I'll just write down that list of actions. Then I'll try and take that and boil it down to something a little less verbose, but still clear. So maybe if the action was user clicks on red button with a green arrow, we would change that to arrow button clicked or red button clicked, depending on what the defining factor is there. So we can, if there's a red button elsewhere in the product, we can continue to use that event. The other piece that we'll look at is say, okay, when you're tracking each of these things, what are you hoping to gain from it? Because in certain cases, the same thing can be tracked in many cases, actually, 
the same thing can be tracked in a variety of ways. And you don't want to have a bunch of data just for the sake of it. So you can have events with just two properties underneath them and they serve their purpose. Great. In certain cases, you have events that have 35 properties underneath them, but each of those properties is needed by a different uh, member of the team for their analysis. And that's great as well. So walking through the product, understanding the context and how they expect the user to use it, that's also a big piece of it. So when they're telling us why they want to track something, a lot of cases, PMs will say, this is because we think this is what the user is going to do and we're not sure. So we just need to be able to validate whether or not the product is being used the way we think it is. So when they say something like that, it gives you really good context for, okay, they're paying attention to their user journey and that's the right mindset to have. So once they get to a point of, these are the data points I want to track, at that point, it just becomes a matter of matching those up to existing events in the schema. In the case that there's not an event in the schema that uh, meets their use case, writing a new one with them and making sure that it makes sense to them as well as to the analytics team. How did your superpower of asking questions help you automate away certain activities? Well, for starters, if you keep on asking questions enough, eventually people want to shut you up. So they're willing to do some work so that you won't ask any more questions. That's one piece of it. The other piece is also just understanding more. There's the obvious pitfall of just asking so many questions that you're not learning anything because of the noise and you're just causing problems or being a hassle to those around you. But if you're genuinely asking questions because you want to understand the larger context and other people know this, they're very willing to answer them because they know that if you learn something or you're able to make a connection, it'll probably benefit their life. So when I was at IBM and also at ABI, I just try to ask as many questions as possible to get an understanding of just how things work. Because in a lot of cases, people assume that other people know how things work and somebody doesn't necessarily have a bird's eye view of everything. So even if you can just you know carve out 5% of your domain and like really truly understand it, that can go a long way in uh, one, making others more willing to help you because you're able to help them with this and you truly know it in and out. But two, give better context because it's not just about how things function. It's also why were they made to function like this. So understanding why things were built in a certain way or why things weren't done in a certain way can help with future decisions. And also when you know a bunch of random things, you can have better ideas because you can stand on the shoulders of giants. Who are some of those giants or supporters? So our engineer at IBM was phenomenal. And my favorite thing to do was to sit down and argue with him because at the end of the discussion, one of us understood why the other was right. And we were both agreed on what was right. So there were plenty of times where I walked away being like, oh man, I can't believe I thought that. There were a couple of times he walked away being like, oh, okay, Arjun's actually correct. But as a result of that, I learned things that weren't necessarily my domain. But when I spoke up on them, he listened and vice versa. If he saw me doing something that wasn't his domain, but he knew that you know, I valued his input, he would say something and help me out. My entire team, to be quite frank, both at IBM and ABI, I think I've been pretty lucky to work with the people that I have. And even in the orgs that I've been, while in a larger sense, you know, that IBM data was very highly prioritized. So we always had really good support, which I uh, very much appreciated. What do you do as the organization's data maturity grows and you're thinking about your job responsibilities? It moves from day-to-day and implementation to longer term and taking something that you're doing and turning it into a repeatable or 
straight up automatable process. It also goes from, okay, how do we marry these two different data points or you know, make sure that this downstream user is getting this data? Uh, once you have a more stable data flow and you're pretty confident about what's coming into your system, then it goes to, okay, what other systems do we need to be sending this to and what other systems should we be ingesting? I think a good example is the Foxtrot integration that we did with Braze. So Foxtrot is our logistics company down in DR. And anytime a delivery is about to go out uh, in their system, the Foxtrot system, they get an event that says route created, and it contains the IDs of all the stores that are going to get hit on that route. And we were able to take that data, plug it into segment uh, through a function that Oliver from segment helped us set up. And it would look at the Foxtrot data, look at the customer ID, match it to a store ID, pass it into Braze, and it would trigger a message to those store owners saying, hey, your items are out for delivery. We were able to think about doing it to accomplish it in the space of four days because we were able to use Segment. So there, we weren't redoing work that had already been done. We weren't trying to redefine the wheel. We were able to just take what we had, plug it in, and go. Now there's a small piece of it in there, and we're going to continue to ramp up the amount of information we're getting. So I think it's really just looking for consistency. And when you have stability and kind of repeated performance, that's usually a good indicator that we can start looking to either expand the stack or expand the scope of what the stack is covering. Would you share one of your biggest learnings from either expanding the scope or expanding the stack? So actually, a big one was at IBM shifting from intercom to Braze. At the time, it did not seem like an expansion. It seemed more like an upgrade, which I guess is, you know, you can argue it either way. But we were we thought we were taking out one component and slotting in another component that did the same thing a little bit better for our use case. And again, wild, wild west, data is still growing. So as similar as the two products are, they're still very, very different. So I think what we thought was going to be a, an intense but only three-month process was closer to six and even more intense than we thought. And I think my biggest learning was just uh, keep on asking questions because I wasn't owning Braze, I wasn't owning Intercom. So I was a little bit more on the periphery of it. And I would kind of just, you know, accept the information as it came in. And I found out as we got deeper into it that if you don't ask the questions because you assume somebody else did, chances are somebody else also made that assumption. So it's better to have two people ask the same question than to have nobody ask it at all. Arjun, you had also shared with me before we spoke today about a freebie story that gets early wins to your downstream users. How do those freebies help you onboard new segment use cases and users from product and marketing and engineering and analytics? So when if you build it, they will come is true to a certain extent. But once they get there, they have to want to stay there. And the way that we found we could do that was by just essentially letting them run wild and do whatever they want with the stack for the first few adopters. Obviously not sustainable long-term, but if you want folks to come in and give you that cosign and tell their colleagues about it and uh, you know tell their managers and their teams, they need to feel like they're getting something out of it. And you can't expect them to come in and just pick up your process and do a bunch of dev work and trust that they'll see results in a few weeks. So we said, okay, you track what you want. You can track it however you want. You can send it into Amplitude. We'll give you access to the database. You do what you like and you tell us what works and what doesn't work. And that was great. We had really involved teams that were truly helping us help them because they were learning about the ins and outs of the development. They were seeing what didn't work and what did. 
they were telling us, uh, hey, you know, for page events, make sure that you're tracking refer, make sure that you're including it in this way, make sure that you're setting up your path this way, because otherwise it's going to look different from everybody else's. So it was really good in that sense. But at the same time, it was apples to oranges to bananas to pineapples. There was no consistency between them. And if that team changed, all of a sudden, nobody knew the data. So once we had buy-in and you know teams could see the value of it, it was easier to start moving towards a process and having criteria and checklists that teams needed to meet in order to move to production because otherwise, you know, all of this was for naught. So a little bit of space for everyone to see what they could do and what their particular fruit would look like. Exactly. Yeah. So being able to plant your own little tree and see what that looks like and then say, okay, now it's time to really plant the forest. Arjun, to wrap up this discussion, what are three takeaways you'd like to leave with the listeners as they think about automating away their jobs? Automating away your job is good. You might feel like uh, everything should be automated immediately. That's not the case. Uh, everything should always have a reason for automation. So uh, just because it can doesn't mean it should. Everything that you're tracking should be tying to a KPI or to a metric or to some specific use case. If you've got a data point out there in the world and you don't know what it's doing, it doesn't know what it's doing either. So uh, maybe stop collecting it. And use safeguards and governance. Uh, it's great to be proactive and to have processes and uh, checklists to get teams through implementation, but you need to have guardrails and you need to have governance because even the best laid out plans can go awry. So be proactive, but also be reactive by you know having governance on your architecture. Arjun, thank you for sharing your data wrangling experiences from IBM and now ABM Pev. Madeline, thank you so much for having me. That's all for now. The Segment Data Council podcast is brought to you by Segment, the leading customer data platform. If you enjoyed our show, you can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts, as well as rate and subscribe. For the next podcast, visit segment.com forward slash blog forward slash podcasts. If you think you have what it takes, go ahead and request to join the community while you're there. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon.